Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today, we have the great pleasure of chatting with Rudina Ciceri, founder of Glasswing Ventures, an early stage venture firm investing in AI-powered technology companies. With over 17 years of investing and transactional experience, Rudina has led investments in companies such as Seltra, CrowdTwist, Tala, and Xylotech. During our discussion, we talked about her view of what frontier tech means to them, the KPIs that Glasswing uses when measuring value-add services to founders, and why diversity is so central to their investing ethos. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Rudina, it's great to see you and thanks for being on the show. Hello, Samir. Thank you for having me. Now let's get into your start into uh, venture capital. You had a a myriad of other roles before you became a full-time investor. What inspired you to be a full-time investor? What was the opportunity you saw? And what type of investment philosophy did you have? I had been in investment banking as a you know little old analyst. Remember those you know 120 hour weeks, um, and I was in tech investment banking. So I joke that after three years of investment banking, I was done with the banking hours, but I had permanently caught the tech bug. So and this was the early 2000s, both the bubble and the burst. So. So both sides of that equation, but um, really became hooked and was excited by the innovation and the transformation and that passion. So I knew I wanted to do tech of some sort and VC sounded very, very sexy. You know, have you met an MBA that doesn't love VC? So I went to HBS to get my MBA and there I met Rick Grinnell, who was already a VC um, and not coincidentally today, my my co-founder and partner at Glasswing Ventures. We launched the firm together, but Rick was already a VC and um, as a student, I actually did a few projects with him, particularly one around the mobile landscape. Mobile and smartphones were going to be a big thing. This is 2003, 2004. And then I went on to join Microsoft, always with an idea that four or five years down the road, I would come back to venture. And the notion of balancing sort of the passion I had for tech and the background in M&A and financings, et cetera, with operational experience at Microsoft. It happened sooner than I expected, under two years, because Rick and our old firm were raising a new fund and they were building the team, so they poached me. But that was sort of the genesis of my um, coming on to venture. Put differently, on a good day, I thank Rick. On a bad day, I blame Rick for my venture <laughs> experience. I think it can be a little bit of a roller coaster for sure. And, and the two of you did launch Glasswing in 2016. You're effectively a lift out. Tell us a little bit about Glasswing itself and what really catalyzed the start of that firm? So um, the idea was that um, while we were in our old firm, we kept seeing opportunities around sort of the evolution, if you will, of frontier tech, particularly having crossed the chasm from analytics, advanced analytics to something else, which, you know, became really AI and narrow AI and applied AI these days. But we kept uh, evolving our thesis in that regard. And we're seeing the impact because we're end market investors. So we look at enterprise security platforms, but with an angle around frontier tech. And this is going back really to the sort of 2012 through 14 timeframe, We were particularly seeing that emerge out of academia with deep learning and some of those um, 
you know, some of the emergence of uh, that wave and making its way into academics. And fundamentally, all our thesis and the investments we had made were telling us that it was going to become all pervasive. It may sound strange today in 2021, but there were a lot of non-believers. I mean, I would, when we did the spin out to have this focus around frontier tech with their AI and applied AI being a driver, I had many, many, many questions around was AI really a thing? Was it really a wave? And so you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, now it's an entirely foregone conclusion. But from from the perspective of at the day, you know, at the time, we really thought there was a big, big market opportunity for a focus strategy. And so far, so good, knock on wood, but it has panned out quite nicely. There's a, a number of ways that people start their own firms. It's usually with a few backgrounds. It's they were an angel investor and decided to be a full-time investor, somebody that was an entrepreneur, an operator that decided to be a full-time investor. And then sometimes it's coming out of another shop and starting really your own firm. And the latter is, is kind of where you and Rick were. The two of you had worked together for almost a decade investing, started Glasswing in 2016 as a newly formed firm. But a lot of people ask me the question, when I have people that are effectively spin-outs, do LPs give you a lot of attribution for what you did in your old firm? And how do you navigate through some of those questions in the early days where some people may wonder, well, your track record before was maybe not as relevant as it is now, and you were part of another firm. Walk us through a little bit about that first fundraise. It's the crux of what your product is. And um I, I joke with with founders, you know, software founders and um, technologists, you know, even when they pitch VCs, they have a demo. They have something to show. You walk into a room and you're pitching an LP on a new firm and a new fund and your track record and your strategy, those are your products. So with that as the backdrop, um, I'm, I'm really sort of proud of the approach we took with, with our spin out and how we launched Glasswing at multiple levels. One, it was probably one of the friendliest spin-outs that I could have ever envisioned in that we, with our partners in the old firm, we did not, um, we did not abandon them or the LPs in that, in the funds or, or most importantly, perhaps our founders. We literally did a legal spin-out to where we, we have been seeing that portfolio through and maintained our board seats, did not orphan our founders and got track record attribution. The track record attribution really speaks again to the fact that um, prospective LPs would not have to call five different folks to get to did Rudina or Rick really lead that deal. We had the legal attribution, we were on the board, they could call the founder, we had, you know, access to our track record. So from that perspective, we, we lowered the barrier, if you will, to diligence. Um, and also it was very, there weren't five partners making claims to XYZ deal. It was very clear who sourced it and who led it and who was seeing it through. Fundraising is never easy. Even when it's easy, it's not easy. And it's even harder when it's a first-time fund and you're just establishing an, a new firm. But I will say that doing a spin out on the up and up and, you know, that dynamic helped, helped matters a lot. The continuity aspect does help a lot when you have a team that's been together. And that's one of the main risks that LPs do underwrite to. The other one is 
looking at the investment thesis itself and understanding why is this manager uniquely positioned to execute on a certain thesis? You're right. Five years ago, Frontier Tech was something that a lot of people didn't understand or at least at, at worst uh, or at best rather skeptical of. Today, you see firms like Lux and DCVC doing Founders Fund doing a lot of it. Take us back to 2016 for a second. How did the focus on, on Frontier Tech guide your investment thesis and strategy in terms of the type of companies, the stage of companies, and what type of risks you were underwriting to with those uh, early stage frontier tech companies? Absolutely. So the good news going back to 2016 and onward is that it's not as though we were in a different focus or different space and woke up and said, oh my gosh, I got to do frontier tech. Um, it, w- it has been very, very much continuation of strategy. So we came out of a generalist tech or list stage tech fund where Rick and I had this focus. So, and with we and the LPs that backed us um, fundamentally shared the view that there, it was a big enough opportunity for us to stand on our own. So in many ways, going back also to, to your earlier question around how did the spin out happen and you know how what helped it, it's been a continuation of strategy. It's been an evolution. So our focus and our strategy is very much around end markets. And then from wave of disruption to wave of disruption, what the catalyst is evolves, changes, or transforms over time. What do I mean by that? So end markets being really enterprise platform security. Okay. But I've just said to you, this is a what trillion dollar market opportunity. So that's not really focused. What where the focus comes in for us is that I'm not just looking at an enterprise SaaS business in XYZ. I'm actually looking beyond the execution of founder, the usual criteria you'd see. I'm looking for that frontier tech that is so disruptive that it will transform the current market either to disrupt the incumbents or to market make in a new category. And for us and where we are in the evolution, um, AI has been the grand majority of that. Now, that's sort of one, one piece of the equation. The other piece is the stage that we invest in. I am very, very nervous to even throw sort of letters or nomenclature today because I assure you, if, if this podcast stays on for a few months, the nomenclature will have shifted. So five, six years ago, I would have said, oh, we're the first institutional, or maybe a little longer than that, but we're the first institutional investor in, you know, hence the Series A round and oftentimes the first capital in. Today, the Series a has taken a very, very different dynamic. So let me articulate it differently for, in, in a way that I think has persisted time. We are early stage investors right now that nomenclature is seed, but I'm not married to it. You can call it whatever you want, where we are investing in companies that are two to four quarters away from product launch or the product has been in the market for a couple of quarters. So we're not really taking any raw, if you will, tech, algorithmic, and even data risk. What we are taking is product market fit and go-to-market risk. And that's what we have done for, for many, many years, and that's what we will continue to do. So let's focus on nomenclature, more around what stage can we come in, and how do we help the business de-risk from there? You're investing these companies that, are six to 12 months away from releasing product. And one of the things that a lot of folks think about Frontier Tech is high technical risk, 
could be two, three, four, five years sometimes before a product goes to market. And sometimes these companies raise tens of millions of dollars before that happens. It sounds like what you're focusing on is a very different type of company that is a little bit more conservative when it comes to early cash burn and getting a product to market. Not necessarily. I think um, I think maybe we, we alter our definition a bit. You might be equating frontier tech and deep tech. And sometimes they are the same. Oftentimes they are not. Frontier tech, I'm talking about really at the cutting edge of innovation. Not necessarily that it is deep tech, you know, that's going to take three to four to five years before you can commercialize it. That, in fact, would be beyond our our horizon for, for launching. And, and that's why, you know, I, I prefaced our discussion by saying I'm in marketing, we're in market investors. So, you know, pick deep mind. It has as, AI, as much AI as you'd want. And in fact, it's probably one of the more forward sort of oriented companies, if you think about it, around the area of general AI. But we would have missed it every time by design because we do not invest in companies that have tech in search of an application or a use case. Instead, I'm starting with, okay, within enterprise, I'm a thesis-driven investor. So we, we haven't talked about that. I have this, you know, five or six or seven themes or thesis. And then underneath them, I go deeper and deeper. I'm looking for this type of opportunity to apply to this problem with this budget or with this budget in the making or with this pain point, and it's a must-have. So when you come at it, if you will, I'm already looking for a solution to a problem, but instead of your run-of-the-mill SaaS, I'm looking for a for a degree of tech that is truly cutting-edge that can give you an advantage in addition to the execution play. That's helpful to, uh, to, to further define it. I'd be curious in understanding just if you could break down the anatomy of what you consider a successful frontier tech company. And when you are looking at these companies, how do you analyze and go through that, that discussion within your partnership as well as in your own head? I mean, what I consider a successful frontier tech company is what you'd consider a successful tech company, period, in the sense that ultimately it's capital lean and returns out. Along the way, and a little bit tied back to now contradicting myself um, for a second, um, while it's not deep tech, along the way, you want to see the um, progress of, you know, unprecedented growth and sort of the tripling, you know, year over year, et cetera, in, in, in ARR. But what, what I notice about and what we sort of have a view around Frontier Tech is, especially if you're leveraging AI, where just for the purposes of this discussion, knowing full well that they're not the same thing, I'm going to use ML and AI interchangeably, knowing full well that they're not quite exactly the same. But especially in the beginning, when you're training the algorithms, you know, um, to take advantage of ML, with the data, typically frontier tech, but especially applied AI companies leveraging data, their early days, they take a little bit more time because you're training the algorithms as opposed to just starting straight up with front, you know, with software alone without being informed by data. When that happens, you see a little bit of a sort of longer window of time to get to market. But then if all goes appropriately and according to what one plans, then you should see them outperforming. And so the adoption curve once in the market should be steeper, if you will, and the time um, shorter. It was something that I was thinking about and alluding to earlier. You did make the distinction between deep tech and frontier tech, which I think is an important one. 
But what you're highlighting also, there are situations where it takes a little bit longer to get to product to market to really get those pure revenue metrics. But in scenarios where you see a company that you think, hey, has this high potential, it is on the cutting edge, it has these elements that are driven around AI, but could take 12 to 24 months to show real, real traction in, in the traditional top line perspective. How does that instruct your own investment strategy in terms of the size of the rounds that you're leading and how much runway you want to have these companies get to really achieve those milestones necessary for the next round of capital? I think when, when we value, I mean, this is, this is a question, how do we evaluate an opportunity and an investment in a company, right? So from that perspective, you know, we parse it around, can we de-risk our understanding and, you know, can we go in knowing full well that the product works? <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds table stakes, but especially when you have the AIP. So we, one of our partners, Vlad Seinoha, was the former CTO of Nuance and former chief scientist for Kurzweil AI. Um, Vlad is really, especially when we go deep, uh, you know, into the DD phase, He's really owning that piece. And then beyond there, I don't know if you and I have talked about offline in the past, but we have a group of about 40 advisors that work with Glasswing on a contractually exclusive basis. So what that means is they don't work with other funds. And a good subset of that group is really academics and um, technologists out in industry focused on frontier tech in their day jobs and um, and in AI within that umbrella. So there is a lot that goes on from a diligence perspective around ensuring that the technology and product piece and access or slash ownership to data, and we can have a whole different discussion on that, is there. Then the other side of the equation is around go-to-market and how can we help them go to market faster? And I will come to the answering the question once I have these two pieces around how we funded, therefore. From, from the go-to-market piece, that's where, again, our thesis comes in and our domain expertise comes in. Humor me, um, if you had a company that was in the leveraging AI and all the techniques, you know, that would be familiar with and, you know, have expertise in and for drug discovery, we would be the wrong fit because it's not a market I know well at all. Instead, if it is a company that is... I don't know, um, disrupting, for example, I'm thinking of Verison in the portfolio, transforming and disrupting the status quo when it comes to um, managing inventory um, in the supply chain broadly defined and particularly parts, um, you know, direct and indirect materials. In that one, okay, you can uh, we can wrap our head around it. We have the right domain expertise. We can actually help them close customers during due diligence pro the due diligence process. So we know how to shrink the go-to-market and the sales cycle and get them, in particular, those first proof points around logos and customers that matter. In turn, once we sort of have those two sides, uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing and there's a lot more, as you know, to due diligence and, and how you help a company. But once we have comfort around that, then we always want to make sure that they have some, you know, plenty of runway to get to that next milestone. So what that means is that we typically look for 18 plus months of runway to give to the company. And we over 90% of the time, join forces, so we lead and co-lead with, with other firms. 
Um, and we've done them alone as well, but we have no problem or egos in terms of, you know, co-leading deals at all. The, the more value investors, the better. Yeah. And you mentioned something a second ago and embedded in your answer around the number of advisors, some of the team members you had. And I remember you and I having this conversation. I was looking at your deck and not only did I see the advisors, but I saw a team that was significantly bigger than what you normally see for a fund that or a firm that has, you know, sub 200 million or 250 million rather in AUM. One of the questions I always ask is, is this a function of what we're seeing right now of founders want more? They need the level of support and to really have a comparative advantage as a venture firm. It's far more than capital. You have to have a very clear thesis, understand the business and really mobilize around it, both with the investing team, your extended network and the other folks that play certain roles. Tell us a little bit about how you constructed the team in order to add the most value to these founders. And what are some of the learnings in terms of the type of people that you need to bring on to really give the founders the type of experience that, that is necessary? So, um, so it's interesting because you speak of it in terms of a trend. And yeah, you step back and you look at the mega firms and the mega funds and they have the executive center. And, you know, and those are actually at this point, business lines and PL lines, not the approach we have taken at Glasswing. Honest to goodness, it was more of a what Rick and my DNA was like and how could we institutionalize that? You know, if you take a step back, how often does one in life, unless you're a tech entrepreneur and you do it over and over, how often do you get to start busy firms from scratch? I assure you, I've done it once. I hope I don't have to do it again. It's the best thing I've ever done and the hardest thing I've done. So from that perspective, when we started day one, we said, what did we want to be when we grow up? And from day one, it's not been about, oh, let's have the two, you know, founding partners and maybe a junior, you know, associate and maybe an EA and let's just go do it. That's a very viable approach. Plenty of firms do it. Instead, what we wanted to do is sort of live to this mantra. This is a Monday we're recording. Um, and I just came out of a partner meeting and I reminded the team that the goal is before we go to a founder or CEO and ask them what have they done in regards to XYZ related to the company, how have we earned our keep with them? And earning our keep is not investing capital. What have we done for them to be able to expect? That's the DNA. That's the mindset. That's the culture. So with that, we basically have a team of 13 at this point. Um, we have two data scientists. We have an investment team of, let's see, two data scientists that we don't even count as part of the investment team, three folks on the platform um, team. So that's that's five. The balance effectively is all the investment team. So we have two venture partners, one visiting partner, three general partners, two associates and analysts. So put differently, we've put whatever resources, we've put them into building the team and building the firm why? Because the companies we invest in, they want the biggest need they have is, again, honing in the go-to-market, translated as they need talent, executive talent, and customers. So how are we going to set ourselves up? In the domain areas that we are in, they constantly evolve. Doing thesis require development and, and upgrading and continuously evolving requires thought leadership requires real research in the market and in the more sense academic sense of the word 
And fundamentally, how do we help our founders beyond what your typical run-of-the-mill VC would do? So all of those pieces together require resources. And then we build our own sort of analytics and ML capabilities, which are not developed enough for me to even, you know, go deep into, but they're all in the making with the notion of, again, how will we evolve as the markets evolve, but fundamentally do our disproportionate share of contributing not just in, in in lingo, but in actual data. We track it, how many people have we placed, how many customers have we closed. I mean, we tend to be meticulous about it. I'm glad you went into details. My next question was actually centered around KPIs and thinking through how you measure success of the value add services you offer founders and which ones actually lead to positive business outcomes. Turning this to internally for a second and looking at portfolio construction, Given that you spend so much time with companies, I would presume that your model is fewer companies, higher ownership, which in today's world creates some challenges given the rising valuations. How do you combat this internally at Glasswing? And are there things that you do from an investment standpoint, be it investing in different regions or different type of founders that allow you to continue to get the ownership that you historically have gotten without significantly raising your fund size? I think we sit outside the valley. So we, we have a particularly heavy emphasis on the East Coast, but generally the U.S. outside the valley. View being that there is so much concentration of dollars in the valley, why would you take money from a firm in Boston or New York, if you will, if you have 60% of the capital there? And But it's also the case that we're operating in markets where the ecosystem of startups is developed <laughs> The exit and track record exists and the talent exists, particularly when you look at enterprise security overlaid with AI talent. So from that perspective, we're going into markets where there is a frothiness of um, of investment opportunities of startups, but not as much competition, although in, in general, we're all seeing the upward pressure in valuations and it would be silly to argue otherwise. But we don't see the same level of pressure as you would, you know, in the valley, as my colleagues are in the valley. Um, we actually get a chance to do some diligence uh, prior to issuing the term sheet. And and we are thoughtful about the investments that we make and the valuations that we go in. Now, we're thoughtful about the valuations that we go in shouldn't be code for we, we try to take advantage of our founders. The exact opposite. We're in this ride for a long, long time, you know, a decade, if not more. Um, what it is, it's a balancing act between not diluting them too much, but also having enough ownership. And the way we win, it's honestly, it's not on am I the top, you know, highest valuation term sheet. The way we win is that with my term sheet, I'm already bringing, you know, two execs to the table and the customers at the same time, all sort of non-dilutive capital, in, at least on the latter. Um, so truly, truly proving um, that we are value-add. In your question, you used a term that kind of caught my attention because it's something that we refer to very frequently. We view ourselves as extension to the team. So when you are an extension to the team, it's not the high and mighty VC or board member walking in. It's the additional laborer here, um, you know, closing deals with you or, you know, working on pricing strategy or, you know, product roadmap, whatever the case might be. Um, You only scale so much. So 
having concentrated ownership is important so because we're not taking a sort of a portfolio well we're taking a portfolio approach but we're not taking an index approach we're not doing a hundred deals um, and let let it play out by the same token we better contribute enough value to justify our ownership early in this conversation you brought up the concept about entry and exit prices and both of those things have actually gone up in terms of what we've seen over the last five to 10 years, and certainly the last two or three years. But when you're looking at a company that might fall outside your parameters on entry price, be it the valuations much higher than what you're normally willing to pay, and then you look at the exit price and you've assessed a certain exit price that this company could get, the thing that sometimes strikes me is that the exit price is largely unknown. Sometimes markets evolve over time. And you're underwriting to an exit that might be 5 to 10x less than what is really possible. When you're looking at companies like that, how do you decide to make certain exceptions and not be prescriptive around a certain valuation? Is there a certain methodology or mental model that you use? So it's a, I'm going to give you a bit of an unfair question because if I think about Fund One, we have about 14 core investments in the portfolio. None of them fall outside of our um ownership parameters, maybe because it's wide enough, um, but it's 10 to 20% when we first go in um, and we maintain our pro rata going forward. So honestly, the answer I will give you, it will be a hypothetical one. That's where I think discipline comes in and unanimous decision-making comes in. If you're going to make an exception and there's plenty of opportunity and the right opportunities where exceptions are warranted, to your point, but if if we are going to make an exception, there better be buy-in from from the team. Um, and again, I think unanimous matters because you know it's very easy. The founders are exceptional. I mean, God, like I, I just love working with them. And and you know the risk of falling in love with your own deal is very very high. It it happens to me every time. But that's where discipline comes in, and that's where buying from all the partners come in so that when we do make the exception, if it works out, aren't we brilliant? If it doesn't, we're still aligned that we made this decision together and we and what are we learning for it and from it and what does it mean for on a go forward basis rather than creating dynamics around I told you so. So I think process matter and even process for making exceptions matters. And maybe walk us through those uh, partnership discussions when there is an exception that's brought to the table. Sometimes what we found with larger partnerships is you have somebody that is very passionate about the deal. As you mentioned, it's, it's easy to fall in love with one that you're closest to. But sometimes when you have everybody where you require consensus, you might have a lot of conscious or unconscious biases that are brought in based on past experience that may not relate to a certain deal. And it becomes tougher to, to get an, an exception done. Tell us how that works within glassing where, where you have made exceptions. So the way that every so our investment decision making works is on every opportunity, on every deal. I hate referring startup companies as deals. It feels very transactional, whereas we're wedded to them for a long time. But we'll stick with it. Just know I, I have a bias against, against the word deal. But when we're evaluating a company, um, the investment team, if you will, that gets quickly stood up is it doesn't matter who sourced it, by the way. Uh, you know, I could be sourcing a security deal, but if my partner Rick, who is the right guy for security, then he will take the lead. But whoever, there is always a lead partner and a second partner, and then one or two associates or principals. 
what that means is the lead partner can fall in love with a company, but the second partner um, is the, the sanity check, is the check and balance in that deal. So even as we're discussing them every week and as we're making our way to the investment committee, should everything um, pan out from a diligence point of view, even within the investment team, we have the checks and balances so we're not falling in love with our own deals. And then even when both partners are in sync, the lead and the second, and again, the second is really, sometimes we joke and say it's a no person. It's, you know, that person's role is really to find, um, to find the blind spots. Even then, even when those folks are in sync, when we go to the broader group, uh, we all need to be in sync. And what I love, I don't know how this is going to scale. So I don't want you to think that we have all the answers. We don't. This is a firm that's growing. I don't know when, knock on wood, when we get to 10, 15 partners, this probably the unanimous bit, you have to revisit. It probably doesn't scale. Do you go want to focus on whatnot? But today, the beauty of where we are is that it's a very flat organization, Literally, there is no high and mighty managing partner or managing director. I can think of a particular deal. It got killed because an associate felt so strongly and had domain expertise in the area and it just got killed. We didn't have buy-in from everybody. So I, I hope, I don't have the answer to long term, but I hope we preserve that spirit because I think it's what keeps us, what makes us good. The other piece is the composition of the firm. We haven't talked about it much, but the diverse composition of the firm really, really helps. And diverse in backgrounds, in genders, in our experiences, that vintage point of the different perspective really, really matters. And honestly, from day one, I mean, you know, this is a women majority firm, two out of three, part, you know, managing directors, partners are women. Um, and that sort of trickles not just on gender, but on other facets of diversity. But I had never appreciated that um, as much as I do today compared to my prior experience and how, how different thinking really contributes. And while DNI and sort of ESG have now become hot topics in the broader ecosystem, I mean, I tell you in discussions like this, it's, it's the beauty. That's where it manifests the most. That's where you, you're doing both good and great business. And I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. I mean, things like DEI and, and BPOC and looking at backing diverse entrepreneurs has become, there's been a spotlight still lagging and the numbers are still lagging both um, on the founder side as well as the uh, the VC side. But uh, one thing that I, I'd just be curious to get your take on is you get diversity of thought when you have people of different backgrounds, but there's still this stigma that is slowly, I think, eroding that there's a trade-off between social good and returns. And simply that isn't the case. I think investing in diversity actually correlates with great returns over time. Tell us what you have seen. And when you say diversity of thought within the firm, how does that manifest on a day-to-day basis? In many, many ways. And again, to to the notion of we're data-driven, we actually track uh, from the firm to the underlying portfolios to their teams. So from day one, um, you know, like I said, this firm started with members of the team being of very different backgrounds, sexual orientations, etc., genders, and, um, and that was on purpose. 
And then as the firm evolved, we, you know, we're looking at our portfolio, we were looking at our advisors, I mean, a lot of diversity in our advisor base, and even, you know, even more so going forward as we're continuing to to sharpen the pencil. But if you look at the portfolio companies, um, I mean, now it's it's a standard diligence question for me. I go in, no offense, three white men. Where is the woman? Where is the minority? Like, what's going on? This morning, I was joking um, because we have one of the um, portfolio companies that, uh, you know, rents one rents for free. So I suppose it sits with us um, in our space. And it's a lot of, you know, background diversity. And I'm staring at them, not a lot of women. So I kind of poked my head and said, guys, where are your women? And they're all like, oh, we're looking. We're to the, I'm like, where are, come on. So it is, it is part of the culture and I'm, I'm sharing it as very casually but now let's let's get real it's embedded in the term sheet um, that they will recruit um, sort of beyond the basic we will put best effort we actually expect them to recruit and then it also manifests on uh, some of the more binding documents around simultaneously with the closing of financing from Glasswing there will be um, policies in place and discriminatory policies you know um, non-sexual harassment but so there will we put some structure that may be somewhat unusual for at least historically for com- for early stage companies but just to get that going and then and then we track and we make it a board discussion i mean i'll give you some data i'm actually going to pull the ladies this is um the ladies that we have but 86% of our portfolio companies have a minority director whether it's a woman or of their background on our executives, 30% of our executives are women or BPOC. Um, 42% of employees across our portfolios are women or BPOC. I mean, think about it. Tech and we're not quite half. We're going to get there. Um, are women or BPOC. And um, and then if you look at Glasswing itself, 67% women and BPOC. People are women and BPOC. And then employees, you know, rank and file, 60% are women and BPOC. So I shared that and we updated constantly because once you start to put numbers and actually track you then know how to evolve and you know how you are doing so a big piece to to our focus is we, we haven't raised our hand and said we are ESG and DNI it's part of who we are but tracking start tracking and measuring goodness follows as long as there are there are good efforts and genuine efforts being put there if I could just summarize a lot of it, I mean, this has been a fun conversation on a number of fronts, and I do want to move to our heat check segment in a second here, but you have a very clear thesis. The DNA to me is also very clear around customer service acting as an extension of the team and embedding diversity as a really a core dr- value driver for not only Glasswing, but the type of founders. And so I think that's all great. To me, all of this makes a ton of sense. I, I've seen how diverse diverse uh, teams have fared, and the data is actually very, very good. And it, it's starting to seep out more. This the secrets getting out, which which is a very, very positive thing for our industry. So I want to go to our final section, where I will ask you three rapid fire questions. The first, now that you've been a full time VC for fifteen years. What is the most counterintuitive lesson you've ever learned? It's something that I talk often about. So this is probably just about a freebie. Um, ideas are great. Execution is what really matters. Every time you're, you're starting something, there's probably somebody that's already had the idea. Everyone will tell you why you shouldn't do it because it's already been thought of, but it tends to be how well can you execute on that idea consistently? 
Yeah, I mean, whether the idea has been thought of or not, I mean, there is a notion of first mover, but only if if substantiated. If Look, if I had to pick, I'd love an awesome idea with awesome execution. I want them both. I want it all. If I had to pick between the two, though, in my experience, I have found teams that where they were in okay markets, big enough markets, but because of their exceptional execution, they were able to really grow and expand their, you know, the market opportunity or drive, grow with the market or ahead of the market. I've seen others where, and I shouldn't say I've been part of those, we've had our fair share of successes and failures, where the market opportunity was amazing and we missed it and we missed it and it came down to execution. So sort of this sharp focus on execution is something that, honestly, I live by every day myself, but also um, but also look for in, in investing opportunities. Speaking of investment opportunities, it's invariable that every single GP in the market, if you've been around long enough, you're going to have an anti-portfolio. For our show, I'm less focused about who the miss was and what was the reason at the time, but what was the learning from it? Is there a miss or two that you can remember through your investing career where you look back and say, we didn't do the deal for X, Y, and Z reasons, which seemed rational at the time, and maybe they're still rational, but now I look at it and it's shaped how I think about things where I wouldn't make that same mistake on a go forward basis. Yep, I can think, uh, unfortunately, of more than one. <laughs> Some of it had to do with the partnership dynamics at the time. This predates Glasswing and what could and could not happen and why. Um, so very, 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 very important to have um, to have alignment around vision and honestly, as much as possible, avoid politics. I think um, I can think of another opportunity where. Um, we missed it in part because the team was incomplete and I knew it. And this is where, you know, you got to be embedded in the process and the team was incomplete and there wasn't faith that the existing team could, could grow with the caliber that we expected. And that team IPOs and did incredibly well and they did grow. So boy, do I feel stupid. I, I think in hindsight, everything, you can look at everything and deconstruct it, but it happens, right? For a number of different reasons. We're all going to have misses. So last question, you know, I've, I've always felt VC not only is an apprenticeship game, but it's a continuous learning one. I'd be curious, is there somebody out there, an investor, whether it's a venture investor or not, whose methodologies and investment philosophy particularly inspires you, where you really resonate with their messages? If so, who is it and what about them really gets you inspired? One, I will say, I'm as much learning, I mean, 16 years into this, I'm learning as much as the next guy or gal. Um, and, um, and it never ends. And that's the beauty of this business. Having said that, um, rather than idealize one individual, I, I pick on facets of what I value about different individuals. So I will not go into specific names because I mentioned some and I don't mention others and I don't want to hurt feelings and et cetera. But let me tell you sort of from a, characteristic point of view. I love, love, love VCs who are incredibly successful, but down to earth. <laughs> the world is filled with egos, our, our own including, and they're a constant reminder of what makes a good VC, which is, you know, connected to the founders, aligned with the founders, recognizing when we are not aligned, we, you know, whether it's in economic structures and whatnot, but people who say what they mean 
and do what they say. I mean, I at the end of the day, I try, and I have a couple of people in mind specifically that I, that I'm, you know, um, reflecting off of. The we love to be loved. We're in the business of saying no to most opportunities that we see, and yet we need to be loved. So it's very easy to fall in the trap of, oh, you're the greatest founder, and say things that you don't necessarily mean. Um, I think if I can have a relationship with a founder where they know where I genuinely stand, whether it's good news or bad news, and I do what I say, and then some, I love those people. I want to work with them as co-investors. I want to emulate their style, and I want Glasswing to be that. Great points of feedback, and retaining humility throughout whatever levels of success is a is an incredible trait, and it's not very often that we see that consistently because human nature is such that you evolve as you become more successful. So I think it's, it's it's a great thing to note. Right now, the markets have been very, very good to people. So we've seen a lot of success very quickly. Rudina, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you being on the show. And congrats on all of the uh, the successes over the years. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you having me over the show and for the, for the thoughtful questions. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rudina. To learn more about her and Glasswing Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show and my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.